Want a hot pod? Load it with webmasterradio.fm and play with us all day long. Make an impact on your interactive marketing through performance, advertising, community outreach, and technology. Be captivated by the people who are leading the wave of change in the online marketplace. This is who AdTech is. Your weekly radio show. Get behind the scenes with industry giants. Be privy to the insider track. Witness the newest technologies. Make sure you're in the scene each week with AdTech Connect. You're connected now with your host. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Masha Geller. I am your host for this edition of AdTech Radio Live. I'm going to be joined in just a few minutes by Sean O'Neill, Chief Marketing Officer of Daytran Media, and Quinn Jolly, who's the Privacy Officer and Vice President of ISP Relations at Daytran Media. And we are going to be talking about online relationship and acquisition marketing in 2006. The question is, is it an endangered species or a healthy infant? Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Masha. Good afternoon. Hi, to the uninitiated, what exactly is online relationship and acquisition marketing? Uh, well, I can probably take that. Um, you know, uh, we're really seeing a convergence in the whole customer relationship management uh, strategy. And, uh, you know, database marketers have been, of course, uh, looking at, at uh, CRM and email and other aspects of online marketing as a way to both increase retention uh, as well as uh, build loyalty and ultimately extract more value from their existing customers. And historically, companies have either really just focused on acquiring a new customer through one channel uh, or uh, purely retaining them through another channel. And we really feel that the future of CRM is really about comprehensive customer management or 360-degree customer management. Uh, it's not just about the relationship, but again, it's about adding value, increasing uh, retention by driving more relevance. So companies now are approaching their customers across the entire lifetime sales cycle, so not just the acquisition of the customer uh, or just the retention of the customer, but you know, literally from acquisition to retention to loyalty to remarketing other products and services that they have to offer to their existing customers, and more commonly, uh, you know, bringing third-party marketing offers and trying to extract more value through marketing partnerships and affinity programs. So what we're really seeing is, uh, a, a, you know, a broadening of the focus and, and not just looking at pure acquisition or pure retention, but again, the 360-degree view of your customer and the entire lifetime sales cycle, because essentially every touch point, uh, every interaction with your customer is an opportunity to essentially sell them something, uh, whether it be uh, you know some kind of uh, brand reinforcement or a reinforcement of their initial purchase, uh, or another product and service that a marketer has to offer, or like I said, potentially uh, you know other products and services from other marketers that they might have partnerships with. Mm-hmm. And how does Daytran fit into this picture? Um, well, uh, Daytran, you know, really in a lot of ways has been a pioneer in database marketing uh, since 2001 and has, of course, leveraged uh, email uh, both on the acquisition as well as the retention and CRM side to uh, help companies really build out this type of a customer management solution. 
Um, uh, Daytran actually launched a product in 2006 called Ad Loyalty. And Ad Loyalty is the first truly comprehensive customer management solution uh, that, like I said, allows companies to manage their customers across every step of the lifetime sales cycle. So, you know, historically, marketers either looked at email as a way to acquire a new uh, customer, or they might use it as a way to, you know, remarket to their customers, and and, and that's really been the the most common application. Um, as a matter of fact, the Shop.org 2006 State of Online Retailing Summary uh, actually said that last year 93% of retailers used email to their existing customers as a way to increase retention. So, email has been a very powerful retention tool. Uh, but more and more has become a very powerful acquisition tool. So our clients have been asking us for quite some time to provide them with a solution that, you know, like I said, gives them a more comprehensive customer management solution. They're using disparate systems and technologies and vendors to acquire, then retain, then build loyalty, then remarket. And ad loyalty is the first solution that really allows marketers to communicate with their customers, you know, really across that entire lifetime sales cycle in a cohesive way so that all of the marketing messages uh, really have uh, a, a relevance and not only are they, of course, trying to increase retention but extract more value from their customers. So one example would be using ad loyalty to uh, deploy basic transactional messages, whether they be autoresponders or order confirmations, and then to deploy CRM and retention style messages like newsletters and content mailings, and then use it as an acquisition tool to then promote and cross-market other products and services that they have. And then if they have marketing partnerships with third-party marketers, Ad Loyalty can also be the tool that uh, you know, intelligently delivers those offers to those existing customers. Uh, and, of course, leveraging uh, everything that you've <coughs> observed about that customer a along the way to make sure that you've uh, really delivered the entire, um, you know, flow of messages in the most cohesive way. So it's really exciting. Uh, it's, it's been speaking to the Fortune 500 companies and some of the larger blue-chip brands who have been using email for retention for quite a long time but have now come to us and said, hey, you know, we need something more comprehensive, and we want to do this in a performance-based environment, which is also one of the really neat things about ad loyalty is it's really a performance-based marketing medium uh, versus just a pure CPM-based medium. Okay. Um, you mentioned the number of 93% of retailers now using email. Um, how does that compare to previous years? Uh, great question. Uh, that was a 2% increase from the year before. Uh, which I believe was even a, a five to six percent increase from the year before. So I think in 1999 uh, it was somewhere around 70 to 80 percent of retailers were using email for basic retention, and it's grown steadily up to you know the the mid 90s. Uh, essentially, anyone doing any kind of online commerce uh, has uh, you know email as the backbone of their their retention strategy. Um, the, the same um, uh, uh, retailers are actually using email now to replace, um, you know, in-store promotions and catalog marketers. As a matter of fact, 81%, uh, according to the same study, of multi-channel retailers uh, have been using email to promote their stores. 
uh, compared to 73% the prior year. So we're actually seeing email now driving traffic to retail stores, uh, not just driving traffic to their online stores. Um, interestingly enough, um, actually eMarketer reported in their 2005 study that 59% of consumers have redeemed an email coupon in a store. So retailers are using email as a way to uh, both, like I said, drive e-commerce sales, but also drive you know, brick-and-mortar retail sales, which is very, very interesting. Email, of course, still one of the most effective ways to drive online transactions. Uh, same e-marketer study showed that a third of consumers uh, studied have actually made immediate purchases after reading an email. Um, and overall, almost 80% of all consumers have made purchases as a result of an email marketing program. So we continue to see more and more adoption from the retailers and, of course, more adoption from the Fortune 500s. That's amazing growth. Um, obviously, email has been under a lot of fire on both the consumer and the legislative front. Uh, Quinn, let me ask you, um, what uh, kind of developments are you expecting on the regulatory front that will affect the development of online marketing in this, co- in this um, case? Well, we've uh, we've sat with bated breath ever since uh, CanSpam came into effect in 2004 and kind of watched what would happen uh, in other areas of online marketing. And so far, we've seen very little and very slow-moving development. And I think for marketers in general, that is an outstanding thing. Um, and the reason I say this is having participated uh, in the, for a good three to four months in the summer of 2003 in the lobbying efforts around CanSpam, we realized that a great deal of the legislators proposing regulations on online marketing didn't understand the medium. I mean, I think it's uh, probably not news to anybody listening to this that the way uh, reg- legislators are describing the Internet is, is, is as a system of tubes in which things get clogged. And clearly, that is indicative of a lack of understanding around the medium. And I think, you know, really what, as, a, as someone who is knee-deep in this uh, area of online marketing, I am waiting and understanding that the future of online marketing really rests in uh, in technical innovations that are going to control the bad actors. I mean, I think you know more and more we're seeing the online service providers such as AOL and uh, the Microsofts of the world going after the bad actors, and really not very effectively are we seeing th- uh, people such as state's attorney generals or the U.S. attorney general going after bad actors. Having said that, however, I think that, you know, and this is a real positive note, I think we are seeing the Federal Trade Commission effectively work with the service providers to go after uh, these bad actors. And I think as long as they continue to be effective and as long as the, the, the Federal Trade Commission works with the, the Microsofts, the AOLs, and the Yahoos of the world to go after bad actors and use its broad uh, regulatory powers under the uh, the Federal Trade Commission Act, I think legislators are going to be a little bit slower to act because they do understand that they don't understand the medium, and I think that's why we've not seen any real sweeping follow-up legislation at the federal level, at least. So I think, you know, um, you know other than uh, maybe more regulations under CAN-SPAM, I do not expect to see um, sweeping regulatory change in the next one or two years that should affect online marketing. Wow, that's a pessimistic outlook. <laughs> but yeah, the government has been, you know, telling us that they're working on it, they're working on it, they're working on it, and we haven't really seen much out of them. Um, as far as the industry is concerned, though, the companies such as yours and other companies in your field, would you say that uh, the world is more or less hospitable to online marketing? Well, with hand spam, with the proposed regulation on the cookies, the child protection registries, you know, can we expect it to be... Um, 
you know, a viable and growing portion of the marketing efforts of um, companies out there, or, you know, has it pretty much plateaued? Well, I think, I think, I mean, first of all, mid-90s is a great number, but I think the, what, you know, with the growth in online marketing, and more importantly, the growth at the Fortune 500 level, is really indicative of is two things. One, it's the all the things that Sean just described. That it's a it's it's such an outstanding way not only to maintain relationships, but it's also an outstanding way to drive, or at least a, an outstanding potential way to drive new clients to your sites. But I think the, another reason we're seeing these 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 very legitimate Fortune 500 companies come to uh, email it and online in general is because of the fact that the you know the Federal Trade Commission has taken action, for instance, recently under CAN-SPAM, and in doing so have laid for, uh, put forth some very clear guidelines as to when they will and will not regulate um, as far as things such as the child protection registries. I think that, you know, while they initially created a great deal of buzz, and in fact, in the last two to three months, we've seen uh, Michigan take action against some rather legitimate companies under their child protection registries in some rather what I would call dubious cases. I mean, in fact, they're not even, they're not going after the people you would expect them to go after, the Viagra's makers, the the, the phony Viagra makers of the world or the, the online pornographers that are going after some very legitimate companies. I think the reason uh, that, you know, we don't have to worry about those, though, is that many people believe, myself included, that these online child protection registries are preempted by CAN-SPAM. And in, in fact, I think that's why we've not seen further proliferation of these protection registries. As far as things such as regulation of cookies or other areas of regulation, as I said, um, and in fact you noted, uh, they've been proposing regulation on cookies for at least uh, two years now. I know uh, Mary Bono from California, Representative Mary Bono, proposed uh, some regulation uh, late uh, two years ago, came back up in uh, last year, um, and it just hasn't seemed to gather the steam moving forward. And I think, again, this, this is because regulators understand more and more. They don't understand the medium, and as they try to, try to take action on it, they, they are confounded by the complexity of the situation, that the bad players are never you know the people you expect. And, in fact, tracking them down is much harder than anybody ever first ex- expects. And so I, I think that, in fact, the way we have it now, we have a, an environment that is, while, while more regulated, while more heavily in, uh, patrolled by the Federal Trade Commissions of the world, it is actually clearer where you can and cannot go. And as such, it makes it a much more comfortable place for a Fortune 500 company to operate in. We like regulations in some ways because they tell us what we can do. We don't like them if they impede unnecessarily on our business, but where they don't, they give us clear direction. And from a compliance standpoint, I like them because they tell me where I can play. Would that also be a risk as far as some marketers are concerned? Um, it, oh, All it's absolutely... It's absolutely a risk. I mean, regulation is always a risk. But again, like I've, uh, you know, I think you know, we take a look at the the Kodak case that the Federal Trade Commission brought under CAN-SPAM. I think it was in June or April of this year, uh, May, April through June timeframe. And what we saw in that case is that the Federal Trade Commission has very little tolerance for even um, accidental uh, deviation from uh, CAN-SPAM's requirements. And I think what that indicates is, to your point, there is, there is risk involved with subsequent regulation of our industry. But again, if the rules are clearly spelt out and you can't comply with them, then you better make sure you are complying with them. And I think that's what we all learned. There are risks, but if you know what they are, at least you comply with them. I, I think, I think the, the greater risk is to have to rely on uh, the, the temperament at 
the, you know, the regulatory bodies and have them bring a general action under, say, for instance, an anti-fraud position where you're not really sure where you are and are not stepping. I think that's a much more dangerous position. I like the, the definiteness of the area we're moving into. Mm-hmm. Sean, would you say that uh, this is part of the reason that more and more Fortune 500 companies are uh, turning to the email channel in a way to both acquire new customers and retain existing customers? Absolutely. And, and you know, there's a, an additional risk here uh, of opportunity costs. And, you know, these marketers realize that there's a substantial risk in uh, not uh, intelligently uh, uh, utilizing email as a channel to, you know, uh, you know, increase their new customer acquisition and, of course, increase their retention rates. And uh, because, you know, email marketing is essentially a database-driven uh, channel, you can do so much more than you can do with other forms of online advertising. So you can create persistent profiles. You can really understand, uh, you know, how to target intelligently your products and services and, and your other marketing partners' offers to your, to your customer base. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, even though we see uh, email as a very strong uh, direct response channel, and of course everyone knows email's got just about the highest ROI uh, of any direct response channel, um, we're also seeing that there's a very positive brand impact uh, when utilizing email um, uh, intelligently and, uh, and really using best practices. Um, we actually commissioned a, a research study with Inside Express uh, as a way to try to validate some, um, you know, some things that we knew intuitively about the brand impact that email could have on a campaign. Uh, because we're largely a performance-based marketing company, we're typically compensated when we generate some kind of a transaction for our partner. But we knew that you know there was a lot of email impressions that we were essentially delivering that didn't necessarily um, you know result in transactions, and we wanted to show that there was actually a potential positive brand impact to those email impressions, and the study was fascinating. It actually showed that from this campaign, that brand awareness was lifted by 58 percent. So all of a sudden, these brand marketers are saying. You know, it's a great acquisition tool. It's a great retention tool. But God, could email really be a branding medium? And we're we're seeing some really interesting uh, research supporting that email marketing can lift brand awareness. More interestingly, we saw that email marketing campaign lifted uh, purchase intent by 66 percent. And this is really what uh, you know uh, blew us away. And and you know, again, we kind of knew these things intuitively, but. What it showed was that even though the email campaign didn't necessarily generate a transaction right there and then, that the consumers who were exposed to that campaign were 66% more likely to purchase or transact from a subsequent campaign, whether it be an email campaign, a banner campaign, a search campaign, a television campaign, uh, you know, exposure to that brand in a retail outlet. So we're seeing this shift in marketers' overall media mix, uh, really heavying up into the email channel. And like I said before, it's really everyone uh, at this point at the Fortune 500 level using email for retention, but now we're just seeing uh, huge growth on the acquisition side and, uh, and really more attention being put to email as a branding medium, which is very exciting. 
Guys, I have to wrap up the segment, but um, Quinn, I wanted to ask you one last question, kind of give you the last word on this. Based on all of these impressive numbers and, you know, over 50%, over 60% uh, in various categories that are incredibly impressive, um, from an overall industry standpoint, what's the biggest challenge that marketers are facing today? Well, I think the biggest challenge we as an industry face, and this is uh, outside of the regulatory front, I think the biggest challenge we face is the perception issue. More and more moving forward, we're going to see reputation um, uh, tied to the behavior of marketers on front. I mean, after all, online uh, marketing uh, is ironically the perfect vehicle to monitor behavior of marketers. And as such, I think there is going to be a growing uh, need for marketers to actually start to monitor who they work with, how they work with them, and, you know, how their message is being conveyed. And, you know, um, I, you know, every company nowadays needs to hire somebody, whether, you know, it be a compliance or a reputation uh, manager who sits and understands that, you know, our actions have long-term repercussion to our brand as a marketing entity. And so, therefore, we must be careful who and how we work with people. And I think that, you know, the, the incredible power of the Internet is also uh, can be an incredible, incredible detriment for those who are not prepared to take, you know, accountability for their behavior. And I think that is the single biggest challenge marketers are going to face because more and more it's easy to monitor their behavior. That is the risk. Oof, scary. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. We will be right back. Sit tight and don't move. Ad Tech Connect. We'll be right back. Get hooked, wrapped, and dished. All week long on WebmasterRadio.fm. Your destination for education and entertainment. Google AdSense. How do I earn from thee? Let me count the ways. Google, you enable me to show targeted ads complementing my site so my visitors keep clicking throughout the day and night. It was so easy to apply and select the ad formats I liked. Since I've discovered AdSense, I've been filled with delight. So earn more with matching ads, and you too can discover how. Just visit google.com slash AdSense now. Are your domains working hard enough for you? Now, park your portfolio at RevenueDirect.com to maximize your earnings on traffic. With RevenueDirect's proven domain monetization service, you'll experience better payouts, more options, and smart optimization. Sign up free now at RevenueDirect.com. It's that easy. RevenueDirect. Make more money. Period. With over 30,000 clients and eight years of experience, West Host is not your basement hosting company. Starting at $3.95 a month, West Host offers the lowest price virtual private server technology in the industry, yet they don't sacrifice their world-class data center or superior 24-7 client support. Sign up at westhost.com today and get the hosting technology and real support your business needs at prices you can't find from other hosts. Westhost.com. That's westhost.com. W-E-S. T-H-O-S-T.com. When you expect more from your web host. Dishy Mix, the soap opera for the Internet Society. Susan Bratton dishes up delicious news and gossip while interviewing the glitterati of the Web 2.0 world. Dishy Mix, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, only on webmasterradio.fm. Hi, I'm Susan Bratton, and we have a great show for you this week. Jason McCabe Kalkanis, CEO of Weblogs. Greg Stewart, former CEO of the Internet Advertising Bureau and author of a new book called What Sticks. 
Tune in for this fantastic guest lineup. Get the whole mix, the dishy mix. Blog, blog, blog. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're the talk of the town. WebmasterRadio.fm. Thanks for listening. Now, back to AdTech Connect, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's your host. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Masha Geller. I'm your host for this Thursday edition of AdTech Radio Live. And we're going to switch gears here a little bit and talk to Ken Lear, who's the CEO of RealTravel.inc. Real Travel is a travel blogging and information site that enables marketers to accelerate word-of-mouth marketing and reach people in the process of planning a trip. Um, Now, we all know about Expedia and Travelocity and all the sites that kind of are top of mind as far as online travel is concerned. Real Travel is a relative newcomer to the... um, to the phrase, so to speak. They've recently been named the best of the web by Forbes. Um, they're also one of the 12 essential travel websites, um, as um, Forbes named them. So, Ken, I want to welcome you and tell us a little bit about um, Real Travel, how it got started, and um, we'll take it from there. Sure, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me on the show today. Real Travel... Started actually like a lot of companies out of a um, an actual need um, that I had experienced myself, as well as uh, the other two founders of the company had experienced our frustration finding information from other people who shared our travel tastes on places that we were thinking about going. Um, I had actually been in the process of selling my last company and was planning a trip around the world, and started searching online for uh, advice and insights from people. Uh, who had similar tastes to myself, who had actually been to some of the destinations I was thinking about going, and was surprised at the lack of information. There were, you know, uh, reviews uh, from companies like TripAdvisor and whatnot, but really not the deep sort of rich information I was looking for, and certainly very difficult to find information from people like myself. So we started Real Travel to solve that problem. Well, blogging actually is, uh, well, blogging itself is growing at an unbelievable rate, Um Every second of uh, every day, as you know, uh, a new blog is created and something that people are really starting to embrace. Uh, Travel blogs have specific characteristics like uh, maps and being not so much time-based as they are destination-based. So it's kind of hard to do a blog about, um, about your trips in, you know, the other blogging tools that are available. So it seemed like a perfect match where people wanted to blog uh, blogging provided the rich information that researchers are looking for, so we married those two uh, to really allow people to share their rich travel experiences and detailed information on their trips and allow researchers and shoppers to find that information and to make sure it's from people they can trust, see profiles, and a lot more information on the people that is generally available on the web today. How do you control the content? How do you prevent hotels from posting great reviews about themselves? For example, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, uh, and that's a big that's a big challenge. That's one of the the big advantages of blogging. Everything that's on our site is actually tied to a user profile. You can see information about the user. You can see everything they've written about. Um, it's very different for somebody to actually write a blog. The motivation to write a blog is to share your great travel experiences, primarily with your friends and family, and secondarily, if other people can benefit from it, great. That's very different motivation than 
somebody who writes a review, and it requires a far larger investment on the part of the author than simply writing a review. So it's, first of all, more difficult for somebody to spam it. It requires a lot more effort. Uh, and then our platform automatically identifies uh, various forms of spam and puts them forward to the editorial team uh, as things to consider. And we actually have an in-house editorial team that looks at everything. And then on top of that, the community and everybody that's coming to our site on a regular basis can also identify things as spam. So we have three different ways of capturing it, as well as a starting point that is uh, very different than, or much more difficult to spam. And would you attribute that editorial excellence, quote-unquote, to... um your, you know, really meteoric, meteoric, ah, can't speak today, uh, such an incredible rise in um, your audience numbers? Yeah, our growth has been unbelievable. It's uh, something that's pretty exciting. We uh, started you guys have been around for You guys have been around for less than two years, right? You launched in late less 2000. Less than a year. Huh? Yeah, so we launched in October uh, of 2005, and okay. um, within six months we had already beat our our growth projections for the year. So uh, we we're quite happy about that. And I, and I do think the quality of the information and having a very strong editorial team is a big part of that, and also how we organize the information so that um, as a researcher you can find, you can browse um, the top-rated information very easily, and you can browse it across a whole bunch of different dimensions, really by you know your interests or just browsing photos, you can move around the site very easily. And I think people have responded to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, you have a technology background, right? You've been um, with full degree on AdForce before that. How does technology figure into real travel compared to a few years ago? Would real travel have been even possible a few years ago? I don't think it would have been impossible. It would have been far more expensive to build uh, mm-hmm. what we've built. Um, I do have hardcore technologists, so we do invest in the right people, but the actual cost of the hardware, um, the supporting software, you know, we, we use a lot of open source software um, in, our, in our system. Those things would have been very, very expensive a few years ago. The cost of actually deploying a system like this has come down, which is great, and I think that's why you're, you're going to see continued rapid development uh, on the web, and uh, some pretty exciting features. I mean, we roll, we do a new release every single week. That would have been impossible in my previous company. Is that what Travel 2.0 is all about? Philip Wolf, the uh, founder of Focusrite, has recently coined the term. Is that technology-related, or is it something else? I think Travel 2.0, in my mind, is uh, much like Web 2.0. It's really... Uh, the web is no longer a one-way communication. It's no longer about travel marketers... Um, sending their message to an audience and the audience reading those marketing messages. It's all about engaging the audiences. And um, that's why travel blogs are so powerful as a advertising or marketing vehicle because people trust um, opinions and advice from other travelers more than they trust marketing advice. Um, mm-hmm. So it can be a very, very powerful marketing vehicle you know, to work with a company like ours that is being very careful to uh, manage those relationships and identify the best content, um, and then and then piggybacking on that in the word of mouth marketing or being there as people are talking about where to go and what to do. Mm-hmm. Speaking of advertising and marketing, you uh, this week put out a release that you have um, selected 
the travel ad network uh, for your ad sales representation. What was the um, kind of the thinking behind that as opposed to hiring your own in-house sales force? Yeah, well, I think um, real travel in particular is very focused on partnerships. We always have been. Uh, we form partnerships with uh, travel publishing companies, with other large travel sites, and um, Travel Ad Network is a great example of one of the partnerships uh, that we believe will you know, accelerate our business much faster. They're, they're a fantastic firm. They represent 40 other travel sites and uh, really specialize in travel ad sales. So they totally, totally get what we do and why it's important and how we engage people. They're in the process of planning a trip, and they're able to communicate that to advertisers. So although you know, I, I used to run business development for a large ad network myself, uh, so it's not that we don't know how to do it. We just felt that partnering was a far more effective strategy for us. Mm-hmm. And you're also joining uh, 8 million other unique visitors across the web who are interested in travel, right? Exactly, and there's uh, a lot of power in a network like that. And um, for a company like ourselves, we really benefit from participating in that as well. Are there any risks to joining a network? Well, I think uh, no different than any other partnership risk. It's just a matter of a relationship. Uh, our relationship with Ten has been great. Um, they respond very quickly. It's uh, just a matter of maintaining relationships like any partnership. Mm-hmm. Where do you see travel in five years, online travel? Well, I mean, in it's it's $64 billion market today, and uh, North America alone, it's projected to double over the next four years. So I just see more people coming online. I mean, the demographic of real travel is not the early 20-year-old MySpace crowd. It's um, really much, uh, really very much a broad spectrum of people, travel enthusiasts. Uh, from, you know, the 20-year-olds doing their first trip uh, through the 30, 40-year-olds and uh, the 60-year-olds doing, you know, the retired travels with their grandchildren. So I think that you're just going to see more and more people come online as, um, you know, as, as uh, Internet access continues to grow and as people become more comfortable with it and as sites become easier to use. What kind of advertising is the most appropriate for uh, a travel audience, would you say? Well, I think that there's uh, several. You'll see several different, uh, if you look at real travel, you'll see several different um, vehicles for advertising. So we have Travel Ad Network um, working with us to display banner ads, and I think that actually is a very powerful mechanism. So a visual, there's a branding opportunity as well as an opportunity to um, actually sell your wares. We have um, partnerships with companies where we provide comparison tools and pass um, actual qualified <laughs> leads to them. And then we have traditional text Google-type ads that run on the site as well. Did I hear you right? Did you say banners were effective? Yes, I did. <laughs> very well, effective. How is that possible? <laughs> I haven't heard that, that since 1999. I know. It's all talks of average and, uh, media and video and all other sorts of fun things. Yeah, no, I think it's very effective, and, and people respond visually. Um, yeah. I think that uh, it, it engages people, and provided that it's, it's the right message, it can be very effective, which was a surprise mm-hmm. for me as well. Wow. Well, thank you for this introduction to Real Travel. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about you guys in the very near future. Um, we are going to take a quick break and be back with Sean Leitsecker from Centra, and we're going to talk about the new Borel forecast. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
Sit tight and don't move. Ad Tech Connect. We'll be right back. Wizards, rainmakers, rock stars, gorillas, and gurus. WebmasterRadio.fm. Come visit our magical Webmaster Wonderland. We got a mouse, too. A rose by any other name would still be the same. Move over, Shakespeare. You need to differentiate yourself from your competition. Do it by aligning yourself with a company who has earned the trust of Jupiter Media, the NHL, and Lionsgate Films, among others. Moniker.com is the most secure ICANN-accredited register on the planet, offering you domain registration, hosting, domain sales, and acquisition services. Wrap that up with 24-7 support. That's your winning combination. M-O-N-I-K-E-R. More than a name. Wow, looks like you caught another one. Yeah, thanks. That uh, makes 23 so far. You're kidding me. I haven't caught a thing yet. Really? Well, what kind of bait are you using? Same as you. Well, then maybe it's where you're fishing. What do you mean? Well, if you want to catch fish, don't throw your line out in the middle of a big lake. Take a smart look around for where the fish congregate, like over by this log. So I just have to look smart, huh? That's right. It's all about fishing where the fish are. Learn how you can fish where the fish are. Go to signup.com. Looksmart.com. Sign up at Looksmart.com. Once a tool used exclusively for communicating with the media, PR Web was the first company to develop a distribution strategy around direct-to-consumer communication by implementing Web 2.0 technologies. PR Web has completed the online communication loop by directly engaging your audience with your news. For example, PR Web is the first newswire to integrate press release trackback. Whether you want to dominate your market or just make a little noise, PR Web is here to help. You thrive in the marketplace and the media. PR Web. Hello, Richard. Hello. <laughs> I just got a little uh, IM that said keep my energy up, so every so often I'll just scream something out. <laughs> okay, well, let me know if you want me to scream back. <laughs> You know, I guess there's a happy medium I have to find. Oh, <laughs> Maybe I should have a cocktail before the show starts. Well, that's an idea. And advise my guests to do the same. <laughs> Get totally hooked on The Hook with Katie Kepner. Every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. You have arrived at the destination for education and entertainment. WebmasterRadio.fm Because not everyone's last name is Gates. Now, back to AdTech Connect. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm Here's your host. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Masha Geller. I'm your host for this edition of AdTech Radio, and I am joined now by the CEO of Centro, Sean Reichsecker, and we're going to talk probably about the biggest story of the day. It's a new Burrell Associates report that says um, local search spending is about to double, but we're not going to talk about search exclusively. We're going to talk about the whole local online advertising market. Welcome, Sean. Good morning. Hi there. Um, the lead of the story, if you read today's Media Post article by Mark Walsh, 
says local online advertising will enjoy another year of strong growth in 2007, increasing by 32% to a whopping $7.7 billion. I added the whopping part. Um, what's your reaction to that? Uh, <clears throat> there's no question. Local is probably the largest uh, uh uh, recipient of the next evolution of where online is going. Uh, the numbers 30% even may be slightly um, underestimated at this point. What kind of numbers are you predicting? <clears throat> well, from, a, from, a, from what we consider to be, there, there's two different types of things, and Burrell's, this report specifically is talking about local, local, and what local advertisers are doing. But from, uh, from a national local perspective, which is the large corporations trying to reach local, audience, lo- local audiences in geotargeted environments, uh, we're predicting much closer to a 50 to 60% uh, year-over-year spend. Wow. Um, for the uninitiated, and I hate to be using that word again, um, can you describe to us the differences between the local, local, the national, local? It seems like a fairly confusing area. <clears throat> yeah, when you get to local, it can be a really confusing aspect of the industry. There's, uh, first of all, we define local in three areas. There's national local, and that would be General Motors, who's trying to reach uh, or launching a vehicle in Florida, California, Texas. That would be national local. Then you have regional local, which would be the large supermarkets, the large regional banks. Um, in fact, if you really look at most companies in the country, there are still very few truly national companies. Even Bank of America, which people consider to be national clients, really only in about 31 to 35 states, somewhere right around there. Um, and then we have the hyperlocal or the local local. And that's the local retailers. That's the local automotive uh, shops, the real estate agents, the um, local recruitment firms. And that's uh, really what Burrell's report is focused on. But then once you get to that point, then you also somewhat divide it in regards to um, uh, paid search or uh, display advertising. And that's really defined as, as directories, yellow pages, versus what are people doing in the newspaper, or on the television station, or on the radio station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, paid local search is expected to double to $1.8 billion, um, and it's expected to account for almost a quarter of local online ad spending, according to Burrell. Um, you agree with those predictions? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, what's going to drive uh, paid search so much at the local level, the biggest problem with what we consider to be local, local advertising is that these local advertisers don't have websites. And so it's very difficult for them to do banner and display advertising where they're leading a client to click through to something because there's, if they do have something, it's not of high quality. So um, the paid search is really going to take off really with the click-to-call and what companies like Ingenio are doing. Uh, that allows them to do advertising online, but they don't have to spend a fortune in trying to get a website up and running. Mm-hmm. Is that where email comes in as well? It's exactly where email comes in. They can really just move somebody to um, a splash page or just an offer or even just a come-into-the-store type of messaging versus a banner ad in which you can't get the full message delivered and having somebody click through to another website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, local email is supposed to climb 54% to $233 million. Sorry, I'm just quoting the numbers here so everybody yeah. on the same page. And um, local banners and listings are expected to increase 18.4% to $5.6 billion. That seems like a huge... Um, a huge increase as far as banners are concerned. We were talking about it earlier. Banners are still effective? <clears throat> yeah, I think that the uh, the banners are... It's going to be slower to take off. 
Um, one, because we talked about the website issue. Also, it has to do with knowledge of online marketing. It's very easy to get pay for performance. It's very easy to understand that you pay if somebody clicks on your ad. It's a little bit more difficult for local advertisers who aren't um, true marketers or have agencies who understand what they're doing to understand the concept of cost per thousand and how am I going to see my ad and, and, and how that's all going to work. So, um, you know, we feel that that's going to lag behind uh, what the paid search and local email because email and paid search are just much easier to understand. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before the real estate agents and the local automotive dealers. Um, they are the top local ad categories. Uh, Burrell says that they're making up about a third of all online um, local advertising. As far as Centro yeah. is concerned, who are you dealing with? Who are your primary clients? Who are you trying to reach? Give us a little bit of an intro to Centro. Um, yeah, let, me, let me start with one thing on that before I jump really quick into Centro um, in regards to the Burrell reports. I think it's, it's important for your audience to understand. The one thing that's interesting, if you add up what they consider to be the total online market, they project a, a market, I believe in 2006, of about $23.8 billion, which mm-hmm. is much higher than what we see from eMarketer which is, and from um, uh, some of the other firms that are escaping my mind right now. But they're projecting a 2006 to be much closer to a $15 billion market. So there's about a 7 to $8 billion difference in the, in the numbers of what they're totally counting. I think what's interesting about Braille reports that they take into account that no one else does is the money that's coming over from mostly the newspaper companies are coming over from the print product and what they consider to be forced upsells. So when somebody places an automotive liner in the newspaper, that automatically goes to the website and the newspaper gives the website and accounts for, let's say, 2%, 3%, 5% of the overall print budget onto the website. Um, which is so when you look at the Burrell statistics, that's why you're seeing, um, I think it was approximately 48.7% of their numbers um, for local online spending is all in the classified categories. And mm-hmm. that really is specifically because of these forced upsells where it's money coming from the newspaper parent company to, and just being attributed to the online website. Not that anybody really went out and sold it. Um, so I just think that that's something to keep in mind that these numbers um, are going to look a little bit different from one to the next. Um, uh, and and to, to one extent that, that has implications long-term for the local industry because if for some reason the print product would suffer shortfalls, revenue shortfalls in those categories, their online counterparts are also going to begin suffering some of those revenue shortfalls because local advertisers are not at a great volume picking up and and calling the the newspapers to say, I just want to be on the website. They're doing it as a print and online package. Mm -hmm. Um, At Centro, uh, you know, we focus primarily right now, we have three strategies, but primarily we're focusing on helping the Fortune 500 clients actually get to, uh, the, uh, to the local websites, uh, the newspapers, the TV sites, the radio sites, the alternative weeklies, the business publications, and really helping facilitate that because at this point the market is incredibly fragmented, and, un- and unless um, this industry makes it more palatable, and more understandable for these advertisers, those clients are still going to continue to spend most of their geo-targeted money on the portals and through the ad networks. Uh, so um, Centro is a company. We're just trying to make it as easy as we can for these guys. Mm-hmm. What, what's wrong with spending money through the portals and um, the ad networks? And the ad networks. It really comes to, it's so funny, when you talk to, 
an internet media planner today and you ask them, you know, where does, you know, what percentage of your money that you geotarget goes to local publishers um, that we went through a second ago, the number's always less than 8%. Usually it's closer to 5 4%. And most um, or a lot of the companies don't even know what they're spending there because when you say geotargeting, they think, okay, well, let me call Yahoo, let me call advertising.com, and let me just find out how many impressions they can give me in Nebraska or Montana. The problem with that is that they're limiting their creative messaging opportunities. So, for instance, you can't do a homepage takeover. You can't do a sliding billboard. You can't do a corner peelback ad geotargeted on MSN um, to certain clients. Yet, that's the most effective form of online advertising available today. Um, so, the the message is slightly of an inverse in which, when you start geotargeting online, we firmly believe you need to begin with the sites with local affinity. You know, the Chicago Tribunes, the Dallas News, those types of sites. And then you, if you have budget left over, if there's other needs that you do, then you can do filler ads um, geotargeted through the portals and through the networks, um, which should help also lower the CPM slightly. But that way it's a, it's a really well-thought-out campaign versus what's taking place right now. Okay. So I guess um, I said, there's nothing have... wrong with geotargeting this, but, if, um, but at the same time it's it's probably not the highest um, quality of ads because, you know, you're getting a lot of the filler ads on sites that don't have a local affinity to the consumers. Okay. Uh, and, and that's where the websites of daily newspapers are coming in, right? Yeah, daily newspapers, TV sites. The alternative weeklies have a really great presence for a certain demographic, um, all the way through local sports franchises such as um, NFL football teams or the NBA um, websites of those teams where where consumers have a really strong degree of, of affinity to the brand. Mm-hmm. And as far as the revenues are concerned, it, um, it seems that the um, newspaper-owned websites are grossing more than uh, even the highest-grossing radio stations in those markets. Yeah, the largest newspaper TV sites today, uh, from a revenue perspective, um, and even from a, a, a cumulative audience perspective, are much larger than uh, some of the largest radio stations in every single market. Um, and I don't think that trend is going to stop. In fact, radio, it's, it's one of those industries where we look at where they have almost zero value proposition um, to uh, the online audience right now. They, their websites don't have any content. You know, the, the, all the traffic is on the front page. So uh, the radio industry is really going to need to figure out what their web strategy is over the next, really, six months to 18 months. Mm-hmm. And that's why everybody should look at Webmaster Radio FM, right? <laughs> Absolutely. No question about it. <laughs> Quick plug to our hosts here. Um, let's talk about uh, web video ads. Uh, talking about the newspaper sites and the TV station sites, what, what kind of a role does video play um, as far as those guys are concerned? Well, there's two things. Number one, um, video, there's no question video is going to be extremely important to the, in the overall online marketing mix going forward. Um, the problem up to this point has really been the delivering, the tracking, the understanding, was it effective? But I think those are um, getting worked out quickly with a lot of the companies, such as Lightning Cast and Broadband Enterprises that are coming into the, into the um, fray. Um, the TV station sites are now just finally beginning to put up uh, their segments online, which is really driving a lot of inventory for the first time on a video perspective. Um, 
And then you look at it as if you, if you think about your typical local advertiser who's on TV, look, automotive dealers love to see their face on television. That same feeling is going to be ported onto the web. They're going to want to see their ad. They're going to want to see their face. Um, from an effectiveness standpoint, uh, you know, we haven't seen too many research papers out yet on the effectiveness of video local. However, I think once those hit, it's going to become really important, and it's just going to become a very easy transition for a lot of those local cable and television advertisers to port their money and bring budget over to the, uh, to the local TV sites. Mm-hmm. Are you working a lot with video companies like Broadband Enterprises and the others you mentioned, Lightningcast? We have just, um, for the first time, started uh, working with both of those companies um, and trying to determine what inventory they have at a local level, um, segmented into what different types of categories. At this point, video still should be considered more of just a, a generic run-of-site um, advertisement versus being able to target the ad to the sports section or to the living section or the entertainment section. Um, um, but as the sites grow and the content becomes more verticalized, hopefully we can begin placing our clients um, in very specific sections that they're interested in reaching. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about forecasts here and looking into our crystal ball, uh, how long do you think that's going to take? Uh, I would really say by this time in next year um, uh, that a lot of the TV sites are going to be able to do that. Um, in fact, it's probably going to be more about a year and a half. I'd, I'd give it 18 months of it at the current adoption rate of what they're doing. But um, at this point right now, it's just a matter of aggregation of all the local video streams and pre-rolls that we can get on a local level, putting them into a very palatable um, opportunity for clients. Mm-hmm. What about the consumer side of it? I, I, I saw a report, I think, earlier this week about um, the really, really low percentage points of people downloading um, full-length sitcoms or news segments or things like that. It, it seems like the online video consumer um, prefers their video content in very, very small doses. How does that figure into the into the equation. You know, that's in, I actually haven't seen that, and I'm not that up to speed even to be able to comment on, on what the consumers are doing from a downloadable perspective with sitcoms. Mm-hmm. I do believe, though, that, um, and what we're seeing is the, the what's going to be interesting, and we're just watching this um, as, a, as a third party um, in, in the process, is the struggle between the local broadcast affiliates and the national uh, and the national broadcasters, because if we think through the value proposition for local television affiliates has always been the fact that they own the infrastructure. So their value is in the ability to broadcast in a given DMA um, area. With the um, merger of, or with, I guess, you know, of, of the Internet and broadband and, and everyone having that in their homes, in which I can get... The sitcoms, I can get lost, I can get The Office, I can get it from NBC.com or ABC.com. At that point, what's the value proposition for the local TV sites, websites, um, if the national broadcasters are going to do that? So I know that there's a lot of struggle going on. We're paying attention to it. I know that there's been no decisions made at all. Um, uh, Fox actually just launched their initiative now where you can get a few of their episodes. Um, You can get them on the local TV websites only. Uh, mm-hmm. And if if you visit a local TV website and, and you're out of market, you won't even be able to see it. So it's going to become really interesting. Yeah, there's been a lot of initiatives like that. The NCAA, I believe, during the last tournament, uh, tournament made local games available on the local websites only. Mm. Yeah. Um, so people are definitely beginning to catch up to that. Um, well, that's yeah, great because there's such a... 
Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that, it, that, that, that that's, it's, it's really going to be interesting to see if the national broadcasters are willing to let um, the local affiliates play in the um, proliferation of the, of the national episodes, the national sites, versus just local content. And at this point, the local broadcasters still have a lot of leverage and a lot of power um, with that. So um, hopefully they're going to get that worked out in the next two years. Do they see it as a threat? The local affiliates absolutely see it as a potential threat to their long-term business proposition. Uh, for some reason, if you think about um, any CBS, ABC, NBC, or Fox channel, 85% of all of the programming is national programming, which really leaves their local um, value proposition to be very small relative to it. One thing I'll just you know, put it out there as, as more of a, a bug in the audience's ear, that um, I would not be surprised at all in the next three years, uh, maybe sooner, maybe definitely within five years, that you see newspaper companies um, purchasing the reporting and infrastructure assets from um, a broadcast perspective of local affiliates uh, and really making a very, very hard push into video on the newspaper websites. I think it's going to definitely happen in the next couple of years. That's kind of a threatening prediction for the newspaper industry, don't you think? At least the print I think it's it's really what we would consider to be supplemental coverage. Um, you know, I don't know about you or the or the audience, but on a personal level, I prefer text online. I can read it at my own pace. I can skim through it. I can get to it. Video. I'm at the pace of the of the video that I'm sitting there watching. I don't think the video is ever going to uh, kill text online, as I still think text online is a little bit more palatable format. Um, but I do believe that if you have the story on the newspaper and then you have corresponding um, video and pictures of the story, it's going to make a much more incredibly compelling environment for the user at that point. That's what these uh, cable news apps are doing now. They have the video feed and then they have the print story right alongside it, and that seems to be working for them. Yeah, which, which publisher did you mention? Uh, I think it's CNN. If you look at any yeah, of the... Yeah, um, CNN... And MSNBC does it, and and from a very, you know, personal opinion standpoint, I really enjoy it. If I read a story that I'm interested in, and I can actually click on the video and actually watch something a little bit more in depth about uh, my personal interest, that's extremely effective for me. Um, let's. See, what else can we talk about here? Um, the quality of video online. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about that. Um, it's obviously gone a long, uh, come a long way um, since its inception. But a lot of people are still disappointed with the quality of it. Do you think that's affecting growth? Do you see that changing? Obviously, it's going to change. But how do you see it change in the next couple of years? I, you know, quality of the video to me doesn't seem to be the largest impediment to adoption of it. Uh, it's really more the non-standardization of players, and uh, you know, as, as someone who is technologically adept at understanding how the internet works. And half the time I have issues with it getting to properly play, whether it's Windows Media Player, whether it's Real Player, or whether it's QuickTime, or whether it's some other you know, proprietary software that somebody's using. And until that experience where I have 100% satisfaction and guarantee that if I click on something that says play and it's going to play for me, I think we're really going to have a hard time with users really getting there. But that's going to be something that it just has to. That I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of companies out there trying to fix that right now, and hopefully... You know, within 12 to 18 months, uh, you know, we'll at least get closer to a foolproof 
video system. As far as quality, um, for the ones that work, I don't have a personal issue with the quality. As long as they're streaming it at a high enough kilobit rate, um, users should be really pleased with that. A lot to look forward to. Sean, I hope you get as much of the $7.7 billion predicted as you possibly can at Centro. I want to thank <laughs> all of our guests for joining us today. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much. Thank you much. so much, Masha. I appreciate it. Take care, Sean.